Boom. Here we are. Thanks, Thanks. for coming. Thank you. Well, this has been an episode that we've had maybe, what, a million times? Yeah. Going back to, what, 2004? Dude, I'm going to get emotional on this episode. 16 years. Oof. Let's hit that AC so that the listeners can be really enraptured. 15 and a half. 15 and a half. So a lot of people are like getting galaxy brained right now because they're realizing that a decade has passed in their lifetime. Yeah. But we've been going longer than that. Right. That's yeah. what, uh, yeah, 15 and a half years ago, the, when we got, let's th- think of things that were happening in 2004. So You're going to have to be my guide for that. Would have been, I, yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of like, you know, references for, music is always like a reference for me. So in 2004, Kanye had one studio album. What? Or, oh. Yeah, because I think Whoa, late registration dude. was 2003. and Or I'm sorry, a college dropout, and late registration was not until 2005. So there's one frame of reference. And you showed me that album. You kind of turned me on to Kanye. Mm. I think I didn't get into him until until uh, years later, and until high school. I didn't I didn't really listen to any, any hip-hop for a long time. Yeah, that's true. But when you showed me Kanye, and I know who showed you Kanye, mm-hmm. who came into your life after that, mm-hmm. but... When you showed me Kanye, you were the first person to have done that, which is pretty, pretty wild. You did that with Kanye of Montreal. Who else did you do that with? Yeah, we listened to. I think there is a special thing for when you're in the period of your life when you're listening to when you're sort of experiencing like Galaxy Brain media for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like when you're like getting into the best music. When you're getting into you know, like when you're a teenager and you're seeing Tarantino movies for the first time and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to show people this. Um, there's like, number one, I think that's just a special time. But the number two, I think the people you share that with is like, that's a very special kind of bond. I just saw our friend Ross Stansbury the other day. Yeah. It was the same kind of thing. It was like, there's just this like sort of deep connection because they were like the same way with you. There was just like 50 to 100 moments of just sort of like, Come sit in the car. You have to hear this. Right. We have to listen to this together. Right. You know, right. uh, it kind of made that yeah. moment special. Like it gave value and weight to that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like, especially with music now, that doesn't really happen with friends. Like people are just kind of like you know they their Spotify alerts them that Kendrick just dropped a, a single and they're yeah. like oh let me just listen to it now on my commute or whatever. Right. It's it's very interesting how the the medium. Uh, or the platform or whatever just really does define kind of how we experience it. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a cliche thing that's been said a thousand different ways, but like from the album to, you know, the sort of like dissolution of the album into 99 cent tracks on uh, iTunes into everything is always available for virtually no money. Right. Uh, and you listen in a silo and you don't own anything. And it's just sort of, you're, you're very sort of like, you're able to you're enabled to be very sort of like nomadic and very sort of like discovery oriented uh and you listen to everything in headphones by yourself uh it's yeah it's just it's interesting how Whoa. much that can sort of define your experience with the art itself it's it's interesting that you bring that up because i've only thought about how music in the platform has has affected the artists themselves but i never actually thought about it from a consumer's perce- perspective and there's actually like a lot at play there. Even in my lifetime, I can, the way that I consume, find even, download music, it's all like drastically different. Do you remember LimeWire? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. before we get way too deep in, into the weeds here, this episode's going to be hard for me because there's so much to talk about, but there's also um, nothing to talk about. No, no I'm kidding. Uh, there's so yeah, much to talk about. Nothing. And uh, <laughs> episode about nothing. It's going to be an episode about nothing and everything. There's so much to talk about. And also, like, <clears throat> I feel like the conversation is going to come very easily because, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you're one of my closest friends. So we're probably, what, five minutes into this episode and we still don't know your name or um, I haven't asked you question of the day. So just go ahead and introduce yourself and what you're up to these days. Yeah, the danger in that is that we could because conversation comes so easily and we've already talked about so many of the, the main topics we need to talk about in life that we could just skid off the rails and have, you know, 40 minutes of discussion about some really specific topic. That's Well, we that's might, in, yeah. I would love yeah. to do that actually. Um, um, who knows? Yeah. So my name is John Drexler. John. And, uh, I am 
originally from originally originally from St. Louis, Missouri, but when I was in middle school, I moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Michael was one of the first people that I met there when I moved there. Uh, we made music together at, I mean, independently at home and on laptops, but also at school and choirs on stage, uh, at church, at everywhere. And uh, acted yeah. in plays and musicals and started side projects and started YouTube channels and started a band. And what, Boy, am, I, what am I leaving out? Like, I don't know. We uh, made you, a, you listed things I for, had forgotten about. We made a... Oh, we were in a barbershop, barbershop quartet, quartet together. There it is. Uh, yeah. We... Um, we we also were contracted. Like, we wrote a song for a different... That company. was cool. We got paid to make music. That yeah, was dope. It was really dope. And they like made it together. Um, we got that was fun. We that was for uh, yeah, like a video production company. I mean, and now technically, I mean, technically, we are working together at a new art. Right. We're, you know, we're drilling together, expressing, learning, growing right. together. I thought you were talking about podcast. <laughs> well, that too. You do, you did have your own. Do have your own podcast. I did. I, yeah, we're not doing it. Oh, anymore. you're not doing it. Anymore. You came on there. You, we should also shout that out. If we the, should shout I that don't out. I think we're really tracking tracking that anymore. If you're down for like an hour and a half of like bad audio but good conversation. Oh yeah, you recorded it in a closet. Yeah, but that was my whole like thing. Is it was that on I was brand like, for was, you? Right. Yeah, I was like on the job. Right. Like, it was a, it was an gig, episode gig, about gig. side hustles. Thanks. You were at a side hustle. Thank you. Thanks. We'll so, try to keep this um, available for all the listeners, but we might slip into like some lingo that sounds a little foreign. We also, um, I was just thinking of an, oh, I was just thinking that you came on the podcast. And yeah, we so. grew a lot together mm-hmm. in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your and podcast, now, what was your podcast about? What's it called and what's it about for people who are looking for podcasts? We made a podcast. It's not on anymore. It's really kind of a specific thing. I mean, it was so. But you can't find it to listen? Oh, it's on there. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's on. available. Yeah. It's yeah. The podcast live. is called Fits and Starts, uh, I think with a plus sign instead of and. Yes. Yeah, yep. Hip like that. Also Fitz, just cleaner. Clean, yeah, cleaner. Um, Fits and Starts was a podcast that I did with my friend Daniel Colborn. Uh, Daniel's a programmer. I work um, I am, I work now in tech at a, uh, at a startup out in Silicon Valley, and we were both kind of like, uh, had made this recent transformation from sort of like ne'er-do-well college student slash dropout into career guy Mm -hmm. uh and we felt like weird about that we both have like uh you know some trepidation about like jumping into uh you know like the workforce as and and had some i don't know strong feelings about sort of just like the nature of work why we were doing it how i mean it's like something you spend an incredible amount of time doing uh money uh, thinking about how this like ties in with sort of like uh, things like Marxism or critical theory, like how like what we think about sort of like what it is to be a worker in the 21st century. Um, granted, I'm not, we were not like steel, you know, it's not like we're working in a coal mine. We're both like we work in tech uh, and we're privileged as uh, as all get out. But it was just it was an interesting discussion because we were feeling uh, all those things really strongly, and we were actually playing video games. And like just talking about just at for hours and hours, and we're like, oh, we should record some of this. Um, I had a, I I edited it down. I would edit down these very long conversations to like thirty to forty minutes, and just try to keep the interesting bits. Mm-hmm. We put it out for a long time. I mean, a long time being a couple of years, uh, and um, it got to a point where once we really got going with our own sort of creative side projects and um, our worky work that it just ended up being a lot. And I really liked editing the show. I didn't like putting out raw audio. I liked editing it down. Yeah. And that... They're different. They're they're totally different. Man. And so like recording, having something to talk about, editing it down, listening to it over and over, um, it was a lot. It was like, it took... It's, it was, it's So eventually we just stopped doing it. So it wasn't because you became disinterested. It was just like the the actual work that goes behind putting out the podcast was not interesting to you well and and part of it was also i think that the purpose of the podcast i'm kind of popping am i popping my peas no your peas are really nice my plosives well we also have a specific mic head for your plosives your stop plosives 
it's great that you're going into this because I was going to ask you what were your go- your personal goals for the podcast. My, one of Daniel. them was to not pop any peas. Really? Mm-hmm. No. Well, I mean, you do pay attention to your your plosives. I'm trying. I don't want to be that guy. You know. The, one of the things is that it felt like we worked ourselves out of a job a little bit because if you listen to the podcast at the beginning, like what we're really talking about is like how we felt like in college, we always, I mean, even just what we were just referencing with starting YouTube channels and starting bands and starting whatever else, like Daniel and I were two guys who were like constantly excited about starting things and didn't like produce as much as we would have liked, right? So like out of that time, I'm really proud of the fact that you and I made an EP uh, two EPs during college. In fact, well, one was right after college. Well, one was, an, to be fair, one was an EP and one was an album that was then re-released as an EP. That's right. That's yeah, it was true. workload. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, this, and we actually did, like, we produced a final product. Yeah. I have a big thing about this that, like, you have to, like, you have to, like, put something out there. You can't forever be in the planning phase. You can't forever be in the editing phase. Like, you have to, like, put your pencils down at a certain point and put things into the world, get feedback, and, like, yeah. hear it, and then move on. I like, liked finding that point with you. Yes. I felt like we were always on the same page, like, when a section needed more attention or when it was good, like, right. don't touch this. Yeah. So, so I think with the podcast, we got to this point. Like, a lot of at the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about, like, why do we feel like we can never finish stuff? Hence the name Fits and Starts. Fits and Starts. And then it was like, well, now we're in this, like, in the workplace where we have to finish things on deadlines, and, like, that's, you know. So... <clears throat> It was a lot about like, how do we get unstuck? How do we get started? How do we get going? And the reality is actually like a couple of years into it, we were both like really busy. I don't like the word busy. We both filled our calendars with things that we wanted to do. And hmm. then it was like, yeah, this podcast is cool and it's like meaningful to me, but it's actually not as meaningful as like the actual other stuff that I'm doing because mm-hmm. we got unstuck. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of right, like, right. There, I almost wanted to put out like a final episode that was just like, hey, like we got unstuck. <laughs> you know, like, that, we worked ourselves out of a job. Like we, huh. don't, we don't really feel like we're in fits and starts anymore. We feel like we're just going. That's great. Um, so I don't know. That's another part of why I think it ended. It's kind of psychological. Yeah, that's really yeah. great. That's a positive like closure. That's a positive ending. Um, I'm, I think that episode actually would not be a bad idea. Yeah, something like, to think about. Yeah, some, especially like with the listeners that, because you guys did like grow a listener base right. pretty quickly. And then so like those listeners, like for them to be able to hear the time in between, like where you and Daniel are now, I right. think would be very interesting. There's a, there's a meaningful gap in there now because I think the last episode was like a couple years ago at this point. Um, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. I, I appreciate that answer and that honesty of like, you told your story, like your story at the time was, I feel stuck. Mm-hmm. And then like you got unstuck and you're like, all right, so right. let's not take up that space, that audio space. Like I feel like so many times, like a lot of artists, they get motivated by that thing that you were talking about earlier, like just get the work out there, get it done. And so then they just like do that past the point that they need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it can start to feel like a thing that you're just sort of doing. You're just of sort doing of doing, it. right. Yeah. yeah, and asking like 50 minutes, you know, of for someone to listen to you if you're yeah. not in it, that's kind of rude. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of rude. I mean, every time I have a podcast, this podcast, um, every we do it weekly. We have episodes like this where we'll squeeze one in. and But there's always a moment where I'm sitting across from the, the guest and I'm like, slapped in the face as to why we're doing this and why right. why I'm here. And you know, I recently had a guest on that that for the first time brought this this like concept to my uh to the front of my thoughts which is this show and your purpose. We're talking about the purpose of fits and starts. Like the purpose of it and your motivation behind it will change over time because mm-hmm. it has from its inception conception mm-hmm. which is very interesting. But like to me this always seemed like LFA is a concept that could be infinite. You can, if I can always find artists, or let's say we're at episode fifty with you now, or something fifty something. If I just recycled the artists that I had, I could go forever. But sure. like, maybe not. So like, it's always good to hear when people are feel confident that they finished a project because yeah. there's nothing worse than a something sitting on the shelf or b like you just pushing things without having anything to say. Right. Yeah. 
do you think that uh, do you think that the show has evolved in that way for you? Like, did if you were to think of like how you describe it before you started and how you describe it today, has it like evolved over time? So in many ways, like the whole purpose of the show is looking for artists, maybe artists that, not me personally, that they've gone over, overlooked. Not overlooked is it has like a negative connotation. Just artists that you don't that aren't necessarily blasted everywhere. You know, I just wanted to dig into the communities around me. And in many ways, through doing that, I've realized that there are a bunch of people out here doing it. And so, in fact, look, the concept of looking for artists is kind of funny. So for me, I'm trying to, like, justify the name of it. Like, it's not that hard to look for artists. You can find an, an artist on the sidewalk. Like throw a rock and you'll, throw a rock and you'll hit one. Right. For sure. And um, so so now I'm just like, what is it in each artist that I'm looking mm -hmm. for? It's probably that I'm looking for something in myself and I'm like trying to gain, you know, the Bruce Lee mindset, you know, like take what works for you and mm -hmm. then keep on going. I think there might be an element of that, but um, I'm also open to just like finding new, new reasons why I'm doing it. Because I found artists like... Mm -hmm. And it, the doubt was never in finding artists. The doubt was in finding a, a conversation that we could all connect to. But so far, like every guest that I've come on, we there are certain things that just keep like being repeated almost as themes. It's like a, you, you start to hear the same thing, but from different perspectives. Mm. And you realize, oh, great, good. If I look for artists, I can find them. And even if we're, we are right now acting as disparate communities, we're connected in the way that we're thinking. So mm -hmm. now I'm just trying to draw more attention to mm -hmm. that. So yes. Do you think, not, not in like to, to sort of turn this into like a woo-woo sort of like Buddhist thing, but like we could turn it into a woo-woo Buddhist thing so, if you'd like. Yeah, we could. But like, do you think that there's something to, just when you start to get super deep into anything, right? Whether that's just making this podcast or becoming a fine artist of some kind. Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu. That you start to, that you basically start to under, like at first, I'm trying to think of the right way to articulate this, that at first what it seems like you're learning is just an incredibly detailed knowledge of the thing that you're studying or the thing that you're making or the thing that you do every day. But that like very frequently, the sort of like thing that you're learning or the sort of like principle that you're abstracting out of it is like very generally applicable to like everything. Yeah. It like I and I, I feel like so frequently, I mean, it's turned into like a joke at work. Yeah, is someone will say something like smart, and I'll be like, "That's such a good point." You know, that is exactly like jujitsu. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, "Shut up, dude. We know." I uh, uh, yeah, that's like me in the show. Where right. I'm like, oh, I don't want to make another jujitsu metaphor, right. but like, <laughs> it's right there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but that's I think like. It, we laugh because we see these connections, I, and I think that that's part of the reason that both of us are on the show right now, like specifically about artists and, and artistic things. Like not everyone, I think, makes connections like that. And then to speak in metaphors and to look for parallels in your life, like I don't mm -hmm. think everyone's on that wavelength. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I've like learned through this is I'll have artists of varying you know, degrees of artistry and whatever field that they're interested in, I have varying levels of like people that are into it, you know? So yeah, it's just, it's, it's just, it's incredibly interesting. But I was just going to say, I don't think everyone, even artists, like they don't think in, in like finding parallels. All the time. Yeah, I think that's a right. very specific right. like skill. And not everyone wants to go there with you when you start talking that or way. Or not everyone can. Right. They want to. And if you can make the, if you can explain it, they're like, oh, cool. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about it. Like I've even had a guest on where I was like, this is why you're an artist to me. This is why you're on. And they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. I can see that. Mm -hmm. I'm like what you do is artistic, my guy. Mm. Yeah. What do they do? Well, so right now they're managing a yoga studio, but they also do like architectural engineering. But to me, like they're, they're doing that like within the environment that they're in. Like they're, they're facilitating a space for like many people to have a really nice job in a very good community. And they're, they're providing a home within a urban environment for for many different people mm. that otherwise wouldn't be there and it's very like the, the ways in which they manage are very resourceful and like 
So to me, she's doing that on an actual practical scale. Like mm -hmm. she's doing what she studied to do, which is architectural engineering. And I know she's not like building things necessarily, but she's working within the system she's given. To me, like another thing I've learned through the show is I'm less and less interested in what people went to school for and what they're actually sure. doing, what they're using in their life. Like, sure. yeah, cool. It's cool that you studied that. Right. Or, uh, what are you doing? Are you right. using that? Yeah. Yeah, I heard a great uh, discussion on the podcast Do By Friday, which I quote way too much. It's a know. good podcast. Anyone who hangs out with me, I will quote that show way too much. And you will listen to it with John. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, hey, would, would you listen to this bit real quick? I have a good bit for you. Yeah, you're like, hold on. I'm going to rewind 30 seconds. <laughs> Take the headphones out, switch it to speaker. <laughs> uh, but they were talking about that. Like, it was it was several people who are visual artists. They draw. Yeah. And they were having this... this uh, discussion about like does art school you know bring something out of you or does it sort of effectively sort of like activate high performing creative people who would have otherwise become activated somewhere else uh it's an yeah. interesting conversation right. and like it's it does seem like at the very least like it could one of the things that was said that i think was a good point was like it you know it can um what sort of help you there's a difference. There's a difference, probably, in speed of how you could learn if you sort of like just rely on like self education and like you know you open up a book without a glossary effectively and you're like uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna grind it out and figure this out versus like having like someone who's like can mentor you and walk you through it. But again, that you know mentorship and apprenticeship also doesn't have to happen in school. Um, so right, yeah, it's interesting. Yep. it's I do think like a lot of people certainly get tremendous value out of it, but it's like. Are you getting something there, particularly in the arts? Are you getting something there that you wouldn't have gotten somewhere else? Yeah, it's that's a good question. I mean, it's it is unclear, like in a personal application level. <laughs> right. I guess we could ask somebody in the room who uh, went to college <laughs> to go study a very specific yeah. art. I mean, we could do that, or we could also look at someone. It, they didn't necessarily study an art, but they studied um, a field that was very focused, like philosophy. And then graduated, became a bouncer, but is now like putting philosophy, like thought into action and revolutionizing a sport that we both are studying. Hmm. John Donaher. He was a bouncer? Well, yeah. And before that, he was studying philosophy. Yeah. I forget at what college. It but makes sense. He's got that very sort of like systematic, abstract ideas about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you look at other philosophy majors, they're probably not. <laughs> Yeah, they're probably not you know figureheads in ju right. the jujitsu or any type of fight combat world. Yeah, but you want to talk about that? I mean, that even that thing we were just talking about earlier with like abstracting out principles. Uh -huh. um, you know, jujitsu is incredibly detailed and specific, uh, and he's the master of breaking down specific techniques. The stuff we did right. today was incredibly detailed and I think kind of complicated, um, but yeah. always yeah. taught in the context of like, why does this work? Why does this, you know, what's the general thing that we're trying to do here? We're not simply going through these seven steps to go through these seven steps. There's something more to it, which is that you need to put their hands on the ground because you need to unbalance them, which right. is a really simple principle that you can abstract from, you know, tons of different jujitsu technique, which was his point, I guess, today. But uh, his ability that, to do that is unbelievable, which it seems like a really, that's like a thing that philosophers do constantly, right? Right, which would go back to your question, like would that have been awakened if he hadn't have studied philosophy? Like, Because yeah. he could have found jujitsu in so many different ways, right? But like once he's then in the room in jujitsu, let's say he had studied English instead, then how would he be, have become, you know, what would have been different about the way that he teaches now? Um, I, You know, and a lot of the the fighters that teach at Henzo's like they have long fight careers and they don't teach the same way mm -hmm. you know it's like the way that he teaches is inherently different mm -hmm. than everyone else and I think it's because of what he does outside of it yeah you know it's like different it's like for me dude okay speaking coming back to, on your really good questions this show have you learned anything or like have you discovered anything in this show has your goal shifted mm. like I have a lot of people on here and I ask them, hey, I've started asking, hey, what do you do outside of your art that informs the art that you do? And the the answers are just like, it's pretty crazy how drastically different you can have those those answers come out. But like 
for me, especially at the academy, Henzo Gracie, the jujitsu academy we go to, the people that are like the most interesting in terms of not only conversation, but practitioners and even teachers are people that have something going on outside mm-hmm. of that. Like I look at the guys that are just only like fighting and I'm like, I, it's admirable and it's cool, but I'm like, how are you, how is this the only world in which you exist? Mm-hmm. Like when I tell people that I also like make podcasts, they're like, whoa, cool, man. That's so cool, man. You know, like it's, it's either fighting or like, some some dudes are there, they have nine to fives, but there are a lot of people there, dude, that just, they wake up and they go from class to class to class to class and they, yeah. and they book out fights and they fight and then they go to class, 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 class. This is something I'm really interested in because um, I don't have really strongly held opinions here, uh, but it really does seem like on, on like on the one hand, you could make a really, really strong recommendation for this sort of like interdisciplinary approach to like life to, you know, uh, all of your different stuff sort of informs each other. You build communities in or networks and sort of like different communities. You uh, are learning different things from different people, which, uh, you know, you could maybe challenge assumptions that would otherwise go unchallenged. There's, there's a lot to recommend it. Right. Um, and also, you know, variety and whatever else there's a, there's a lot there. Um, but another part of me, I guess it really kind of depends on what your goals are, but it does seem like there's really a completely different approach of the like hyper-specialization, like John Donaher, for example, who now what he, how he actually spends his time for the last, what, 10, 20 years is just like hyper-specialization and the thing that he knows. Uh, and depending, again, depending on what your goals are, cause I don't think everyone's goals should be like, go to the top, be the number one, you know, whatever. But, to reach that like crazy level of excellence where you make something that's like jaw dropping or whatever, uh, or to become the best teacher or to, uh, I don't know, whatever, codify a a bunch of jujitsu technique into a really coherent and cool system. Do you have to have that kind of like hyper-specialization approach? Because like, I don't know. I, I wonder about that sometimes. It's a really hard question to answer because I'm not a master of anything. Right. I guess I, mastery. That's Maybe that's a mastery. simpler way of summarizing the, well, the like, I know. last I think six or seconds a... of rambling is like mastery. To achieve mastery, sure. do you have to have hyper-focus? Okay, so then that is fine. That leads me to the thing I was going to say anyway, which is there are different types of mastery, though. Like there are black belts that are masters that could tap both of us out 100 times out of 100 mm-hmm. but couldn't teach us shit. Mm-hmm. And then there are black belts that could tap us out 100 times out of 100, but they're also good at teaching mm-hmm. people from every level. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, for the John Donahers, if you want to revolutionize something and explain it in ways that people haven't, you know, fun- right. explaining, this is key, explaining fundamentals in ways that people haven't thought about before, I think you might need hyper-specialization. Mm-hmm. I think in order to just perform, you may not. Yeah. Because look at the best, like, mixed martial artists. They're literally grabbing from all different pots. Mm-hmm. Like George St. Pierre, even as an artist in general, he's his like he's obviously focused and determined, but he's he's scattered in a sense that he's gifted at several different things and does all of those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like it, I, I don't know. It's I think in order to perform, you may not have to have that hyper specialization, but in order to teach it, like you. I think you might have to understand it on a different level. You mm-hmm. might have to spend the time in there. There's certain people that are just good at like hitting a baseball, mm-hmm. you know, and technique will help it, but they're just really fucking good at it. Mm-hmm. There's certain people that are good at it because they've they've broken it down in its language and they understand it as a as a you know from the its foundation up. I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know what I'm really trying to say. Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably right. Yeah. And maybe it maybe it differs field by field. Like if you are if your salary depends on your ability to hit a baseball, hyper specialization might be the approach, right? Yeah, and also your hyper specialization is hitting a baseball and not teaching people how to hit a baseball. Right. You don't need to teach people how to base, hit a baseball. You don't even actually have to be fast. You don't even necessarily no, have to be in no. great shape. You like don't have John to... Donner's knees are fucked up, right? But he still teaches people how to destroy people's knees like the most efficiently of any of anyone else. I know. Guy caught me in a crazy hill hook today. Who did? One of the guys I rolled with. Whose like, phone is on? 
Has to be yours. There's another phone here. We have another phone in here. Yeah, a guy did catch you in a heel hook today. Caught me in a heel hook. Yeah, I got caught in a heel hook by a brown today. He was real gentle with it, though. So was my brown. He's, he just slid into it very carefully and then gave me a look. Oh, my guy didn't slide. He gave me a look the whole way as he broke it down. Like, in each step of the way, he checked in with me, like, you see this, right? <laughs> and then he, he did go to the next step, and you look back do, up, you see this, do you right? Compre- do you comprehend what's happening? You see what's happening, Michael? <laughs> Didn't say a word to me. <laughs> like three rounds we went, didn't say a word. And then the first thing he says is, well, there's your first mistake. And I go, yikes. A heel hook for anyone who's listening. Michael, you might not even fully uh, grasp this since you go to school at the place that like specializes in teaching people mm-hmm. how to get heel hooks. Mm-hmm. For anyone who's listening, a heel hook is a submission that uh, tears your knee to shreds. And uh, A lot of people think it tears your heel to shreds. It doesn't. Yeah, no, it tears your knee to shreds, turns it at a horrible angle. Um, and the it's so bad that at my jiu-jitsu school uh-huh. in Oakland, California, with which you've been there. Yeah, I love it. They're not screwing around. Eduardo's a complete killer. Oh, it's real. And it's, it's real, real tough, like very submission-focused. Yeah. You're not even allowed to do them in the building. Like even the black belt, you're not a lot. He's straight up just like no, like whoa, you're not messing with my competitors' knees. Whoa, you're not allowed to teach them there. So when you got caught in it, was that a new feeling? It was the very first time I'd been okay, caught. Okay, yeah, in yeah, yeah. It. Oh, uh, that's nice. And it's funny because it was a position that I very frequently move through, where I kind of do this knee cut to get out of there. I turn my body in a way that ooh, good and, to know now. And then he just sort of grabbed it. I was like, oh. That's a heel hook right there, huh. isn't it? Okay. <laughs> giving him a heel hook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's why it's kind of a, it's like a, it's really nasty. Did you see when he was breaking it down during the demonstration? It was very just, surreal. And he said, he said, and then you can just go for the heel hook here. I was like, oh, weird. I'm but, not used to hearing somebody say that. Oh, but the angle of it is like really bad. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're watching him set it up in a demonstration where he's clearly going. I know. I instinctively was like, like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do it. He's very good. You know, don't destroy his knee. That's one of your guys. Take me. (laughs) (laughs) I offer myself as tribute. What if you literally were like, take me. They, they literally don't even teach these at my school. I'm nothing. (laughs) Everyone's like, whoa, dude, chill. Who are you? (laughs) They look at your belt. They're like, who, what school are you from? (laughs) Get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, It was hot today, wasn't it? Piping hot, as Chris D'Elia would say, it was the Amazon. It was the, oh, it was like a, it was practicing in a sauna. So for people listening that don't know, we're talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And we also, um, my wife, she teaches hot yoga. And those yoga rooms are pretty much, you know, as hot as a sauna. The the it's actual, lethal. it's lethal. The heat is different. It's actually a different heat than a sauna. It's um, infrared heat at the hot yoga place. But anyway, it's hot. John, you came up, and um, Julie, my wife, she stopped by. And she was, like, just saying hi. But you, you, the first thing you said is, wow, this is, like, as hot as one of your classes. Mm-hmm. And, like, doing jujitsu in, in an environment that that's hot is pretty shocking. Yeah, we could really hear everyone, everyone breathing. It was... Uh... It was intense. Okay, so of all the things that you were expecting of the school, what um, what met your expectation? And then of all the things that you weren't expecting, what kind of, like, surprised you? Well, you know, the thing, again, I feel like... We, uh, Other some, than some, the heel hook. Some context, yeah. I didn't see the heel hook. <laughs> Got him. Uh, the context, again, I feel like we're doing a lot of context setting for the listeners, but... Context um, is key. Context is key. Um an important piece of context here is that the school that Michael goes to, which is the Henzo Grady Gracie Academy in Manhattan Academy School Academy, it's Academy. both. Yeah, uh, it is literally, and when I say literally, I mean literally, like literally, literally the best. Like if you ask anyone in the in the in the world of jujitsu, uh, it is the best school, kind of undisputed. Um, I've never heard anyone say otherwise. I've heard people talk about like. Other schools, like, are they good? Are they not good? Are they elite? Are they not elite? There's just... It's also... But it's always after Henzo's. It's, has it's been, unambiguous who the best school yeah, is. Yeah. And Michael goes to that school, which is really cool. It and is cool. 
I'm the, very fortunate. Yeah, and 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 like part of it again because like jujitsu is so results driven and like clearly effective as proven out like in mixed martial arts that it's like it was a thing that won the first couple of UFCs and is now like extremely important in UFC in 2019 uh, or any mixed martial arts. It's foundational at that this point. At the absolute highest level of this like very like meritocratic uh, art form, martial art form, the top people at Henzo Gracie Academy are world beaters across the board. They beat everyone in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. It's like it's hard to it's hard to say without sort of like using hyperbole how yeah, yeah. elite the school is. Yeah, it is. Um, so, being someone who's really interested in this stuff and someone who watches a lot of like YouTube videos, I'm very familiar with the top guys at the school, and I didn't really realize that <laughs> they all just go to the all levels class. Yeah. So we went into the all levels class like, here we go, training at noon, and the guy who's teaching it is this fellow John Donaher who we've already talked about, and what three or four of the guys just in the class are world beaters. Like Nikki Rodriguez, Nikki Ryan. It's funny that there's two Nikki's. Uh Gary His Tonin. Brother, Gor- oh yeah. Gordon Gary. Ryan wasn't there. He wasn't Gary- there, but he's often there. Gary Tonin, who's another guy like was just, there. So just that was like a little bit surreal because it was just like again, if you're not in this world, it just is like a bunch of names. But it's like yeah. in the world, it's like these are the these are the best people in the world at this sport. <laughs> They're all in here and just in this class. And the class is not even, what, 50 people? It's like 40 people probably. It's silly, dude. So it's just it's very, very intimate. That was very surreal yeah. as someone who's like getting really into it. It's like just going in there like, oh, you can just kind of train with the people who are the best in the world. Well, and like speaking of it's hard to avoid hyperbole, like that's literally – like the, the 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 standard, like you know, that's there was nothing special about today mm-hmm. in terms of who you'll see there and the vibes. It's great. Yeah. I had a great time. Good. The the, the biggest thing, the, the other thing that was surprising was, uh, as I mentioned to you, I think people were like really, uh, they're good at flowing between positions. Yeah. And no one was acting like a tough guy. No. I think that's probably because there's so many good guys there that like you well, probably yeah. do, it probably gets beat out of you pretty early. It gets beat out of you. You also are you're never sure if like the your training partner is competing. Right. You also don't want to like smash someone who is better than you because like and hurt them, right? Cuz yeah. then every time they get the chance they like they could do the same to you. Yeah. If you're if you're training with world beaters, you don't want to like fuck their shit up. Yeah, and I think uh, and there's a good again like Pardon my talking French. about uh, if I if I can invoke a little French French uh, <laughs> that I think one of the general there's so many like very jujitsuy things that have like general principles that are so good, but one of the coolest ones is like this idea that the only way to I really think this is like broadly applicable It's like. You have to, the only way to get your black belt is to train a lot over like, you know, anywhere from like five at the extremely fast end uh, to like 15 at the kind of like longer end of years. So like that, what does that mean? If you're going to do that, that means you have to stay healthy. That means that you have to work your butt off a lot every week for a long, long period of time. It means that you have to have training partners who want to train with you. It means that you have to get beat a lot. It means that there's a requisite level of sort of like humility Mm. to it, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this joke that like, you know, you meet black belts and they're like the nicest people in the world. And they're very like winsome and kind of funny and sometimes even just quiet and like, you know, don't mind being in bad positions because that's what they did for over a decade. Right. And we had this perfectly exemplified today because Michael and I both, we both go in there and independently rolled with this guy who was like, you know, graying, uh, didn't look like he was in amazing shape. Very quiet, literally in the corner. Just kind of waved me over. He said, hey, do you have a a partner? Pulled me over and I rolled with him and Michael rolled with him. And very gentle and I don't think either of us had any like success against him, but just kind of seemed like a guy who was just kind of going through the motions, maybe working on some stuff. And we found out after the class uh, that he's a black belt. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he, does, he doesn't lead with that. He doesn't like, 
he doesn't sort of that's that's not like a talking point for him that's not uh i don't know he's just is incredibly not douchey and it's uh i think there's really something to that that like he obviously there's no need for him to sort of like beat up on us there's no reason for him to like flex on us there's no reason for any of that um but we definitely didn't beat him and I definitely was trying to. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, like, it's just kind of an interesting thing where it's, uh, I don't know, I think there's really something to that. Oh, can you share the um, the story of at your school when you guys did King of the Hill? Right, just about the meritocracy of it. Yeah. that Yeah, that the just that we had a, um, there's King of the Hill, which is a thing that some schools do. I don't know if everyone does it, but uh, we did it, the way we do it, I don't know if everyone does it this way, is like, uh, you have two people go out there and the first, and you just kind of, there's kind of like five matches going on at any time. So 10 people in each match, uh, the first person to either score points or get a submission stays out there. And the person who loses goes to the end of the line and waits to jump back into the next available match. So a match could go on for a while if nobody's scoring points. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that if you're winning a lot, you're just going out there and grinding because somebody who's kind of fresh is coming in and really wants to beat you. And you just finished another very intense match and just immediately have to go again with somebody else. Um, So it's extremely competitive. It's just like, it's a way of just being at 100% the whole time. Um, There's a switch that happens. You can see people like fight. Yeah, like I want to keep my spot, King right. of the Hill. It right. becomes competitive, a, and, and everyone's watching too. And everyone, yeah. yeah. So there's a pride involved, right? Yeah. Um, and we had there were five black belts in our school, and sometimes you do maybe have like the passing thought of like, did this guy just get his black belt? Was it sort of like, did he get it early, or did you know when people got promoted, was it like was it earned or whatever? And in our in the five matches that were going, very quickly like the five black belts you know, took those five different spots and stayed out there for the entire time. And like, so that means that there's like an onslaught of like brown belts, purple belts, and then us, you know, uh, whimsy, you know, or not whimsy, flimsy, blue and white belts coming at them just full force, trying absolutely everything we had and nobody was beating them. So that's, yeah. So for scale, let's say maybe 80 Ninety percent of the time, a blue belt will control a white belt, maybe even submit, you know, and finish. Now the jump from like blue, okay. So the sequencing for for people who may be listening for the first time, because I have referenced the sequencing in several other episodes, because the metaphors and the parallels are everywhere for me. But um, the sequencing is what white to blue to purple, brown, black. And then there's some after that, but when people start jujitsu, they're looking to their black belt. The difference between a white and a blue is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. And then, but then the difference between a blue and a purple is like, like how, like percentage wise, how many, how many times do you think a, a white belt could tap a purple belt? Oh, like if there's a major weight difference, weight difference, that's maybe, the only thing I'm thinking. Um, but one was still, a wrestler like, or something. Yeah, like, I mean, it's not real likely. It's not real high, right? It's so not then, likely. It's not real likely to happen. Like period. Like, like period. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, like maybe if you like. Okay, we're talking jujitsu rule set. Street fight. Who knows? So, but then what? The chances of a white belt like even being able to like literally stand up with a brown belt are like zero to none. Mm-hmm. So, like, think about like. With anything in, in life, like the steps ahead of you, like that you may be reaching for, if you've gotten up to the top, you're looking down. It's like, dude, black belts standing the test of time with King of the Hill is actually very impressive. And to me, when you told me that story, like it made me have more trust in the martial art that we're studying. Right. It's motivating because you know? you're yeah. like, oh, if I actually got there, I and would I, actually I would be able it, right? to stand my own ground. Right. And that's why why I'm doing it. And like, probably no one's going to give me the belt unless I'm there. Unless I'm there. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. Not the case with other martial arts. Like, right. I'll have, Where like, you're kind of going through the motions. Kind of going through... It's, and it's also become, like, a cookie-cutter cor- corporate thing now. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of Taekwondo schools, 
there are like six-year-old black belts. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's not a thing. Yeah. I'll beat you 100% of the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, why I are don't... You belt it? Why are you giving a kid a black belt? Right. I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't really know it. Because, I mean, I'm really, I'm relatively really new to martial arts. I'm very I new. I don't really know. But I, crack, yeah. I do know that the, um, I just know that the, like, it seems like the schools that are doing it right, at least the the sort of, like, mainstream schools, apparently there's some that, you know, maybe are lowering the standards but like in general you're just not screwing around uh and if you if you're getting those but like the people just don't give out those belts very fast and sometimes jujitsu schools are really criticized for being they're like oh you're just trying to like stretch this out to get more money and you know who knows maybe that's true cynically but like in general there's real legitimacy to it it's like you see one thing i actually sorry not to take this conversation off jujitsu but we can go on a long time on jujitsu one thing I think that's weird about it that is different from the arts is that there is like that like clear visible hierarchy that's like determined by someone who knows what they're talking about. And like hierarchies certainly happen in the arts, but like it is kind of funny to think about like in like music or whatever to think about like some sort of like external judge who determines like when you are ready uh can actually like uh separate out like people and other like whether that's like i don't know musicians or like even at work or something like that that like yeah it's it's interesting it is really unique in that way that there's like structure to it and there's like sort of objectivity to it uh well the thing is like and then you get a rank almost like the military or something that's true and i think it does happen in other art fields but it's not like what is specific about jujitsu is that it is objective. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like it's so oftentimes in other artistic fields, subjective. Yeah. Like actors also, there's a hierarchy of like who, you know, there's also clear black and white who gets the job, who doesn't. But your reasons for getting that job could have everything and nothing to do with your performance. Right. It could have to do with your height, your 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 hair length. Right. You know, so it's like who you know. Who you know it that none of that shit matters in jujitsu, right? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's a, it's also part of the reason why I like um, games that like or that there's a there's an, there's an objectivity in games or even in game design. It's like yeah. trying to make something and then show it to people. It's like it either works or it doesn't. They either like find joy in this. I mean, I guess people could just like lie to you and say like I'm enjoying this, but like there's like a there's a real rigor there, you know, like having a sort of, cause games are weird. Cause they're like, an, they're sort of like art, but they're also like so highly, they're designed to be interacted with. I think the design is the art. Yeah. I just, th- I feel like there's something fundamentally different about games that because they, uh, they're not made to be like consumed. They're made to be, uh, it, the, the player activity is, is the, the point the point that's what it's there for okay so you okay another thing you do is oh yeah sorry De- i'm trying to design games I, you are designing games. i am designing games sorry i lack yes, lacking confidence there i need i need a i need a mentor to come in and tell me that i'm a blue belt <laughs> making games yeah unfortunately that system is not set in place yeah. for uh game makers i bet i could find i i, I could probably someone would probably accept my money uh, in exchange for telling me what I want to hear, brother. When people f- play your game and they ben, say ben, ben, Ben's gonna offer that, when they dude, when they <laughs> play your game and they say, "Hey, this is fun," I know, but I also think again that the only the only lack of objectivity there is like you test games. So right now I'm I'm designing board games with my friend Walter Somerville in out in the Bay Area. Shout out to Walter. Shout out to Walter. Walter and I design games together. We've made two. We've kicked around about a bazillion ideas. What are they called? Oh, is that... Can you do that? Yeah, it's not... We, Let's not do it. It's actually the thing that we don't really have. They Got don't it. really have names. Oh, okay, so but just you know, keep we, going with what you were saying. They need good names because that's the first question everyone asks. I'll tell you... I can tell you in brief that one of them is a two-player abstract strategy game, the same way sort of like, you know, checkers or stress. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> That was a Freudian slip because I do find chess very stressful. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, that 
That, you got to tell people your bit about checkers, by the way, after you finish this thought. I have a bit about checkers? Oh, yeah. Hmm. You think it's a flawed game inherently. Well, yeah, but I think that's been a thing that's been said by other people. It's an example of a closed book game. I think that's the term people use. Yes. That the the book is closed on checkers because there is a dominant strategy. And any game that has a dominant strategy is basically no longer a game because you can play it like an automaton, right? Yeah. Uh, and so So like Rubik's Cube, would that count? A Rubik's Cube, yeah. A Rubik's Cube in my mind is not really a it would be effectively a puzzle that has a known solution. So it's like uh, it's, right. you know and that's like now, if you don't know the solution, it could be a very thrilling puzzle, right? Because it's like very, it's actually kind of hard to figure out. Uh, but if you know the solution, there's like a determined, there's a determined way to get to where you want to go. Right. Um, now, chess is a game with like a uh, some shocking number of permutations of possible games. You could have, there's just so many different possible games that there is not, there are general principles about how to play well, but there is not a single dominant strategy. And so the book is open on chess, as, as the phrase goes. Um, I think actually years and years ago, they did a radio lab about this, which is kind of interesting. Anyway. Hey, that's, that seems to me like one of the things that is so attractive about things like yoga and jujitsu is mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not a closed book game. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and, and uh, again, back to, Don, we don't need to open this back up, but like Don hey, whole thing is like, he, cha- he introduced new technique and a lot of the old school guys were like, no way you can't do this. But then his guys started going to tournaments and winning and you're like, no, the book's still very much open on yeah. this. Hey, you can do it. Uh, yeah. So, so anyway, so we've made one game that's a two player abstract strategy game, abstract strategy, meaning like, it's just sort of like little pieces on a board. It's very simple, but there's a lot of strategy involved and we have played it for many, many hours thinking that we're going to find a dominant strategy that breaks the game. We haven't found it yet. And we keep on trying to play it with smarter and smarter people to try to see if they can break it and they haven't broken it yet. So we think it's a pretty good abstract strategy. game. Good. Um, good. And we're going to keep on trying that. Uh, and then we have another game that is a four or five player, like board game, board game. That's like more like a sort of like you sit down for 40 minutes to an hour uh, and there's a lot of strategy involved, and uh, it's a little more detailed with like a lot of cards and stuff. Which Not, one was more fun to work on? The abstract strategy one. Uh, the basic idea came in like five minutes, and we have like it's not that we we have not spent like a huge amount of time working on it past that. So it was like really thrilling because it was the kind of thing where it was like we were deep in board game brain. And I was just like thinking about ideas all the time. Uh, I was like spending so much time trying to design games. And then one day I was just like closing my eyes on the couch and thinking and was like, Oh, what if a game worked like this? And then I showed it to Walter and he added like one or two rules mm-hmm. and it was basically done. Wow. So like that one was really thrilling. Cause it was a good example of like when you're really, really deep in something, uh, a cool idea can just pop out at you. Um, the other one has been a completely different experience of like, uh, we actually wrote blog posts about it, uh, that, uh, I saw those, which are uh, trying to document sort of how we did that, but Your it was blog interesting. Looks nice by the way. Thanks. See, I think it's just a square space or something. I mean, it looks good. Um, but that one was interesting for different, that was really interesting and rewarding for different reasons because we, uh, it was like many, many, many iterations uh, and so basically like we have this perspective, which this is not like, you know, my original thought, this is sort of like a lot of stuff that other, this has been said many times about game design, but you know, if we're making music, you and I, like, we just want to make music that we like, and we might like show it to a few people and say like, what do you think of this? Get feedback. But like at the end of the day, like we're making music that we want to hear. And it's not a whole lot more complicated than that. Um, when you make a game, you're designing it for other people to play. Again, it's like designed to be interactive. And so, uh, especially when you build a complex game, you don't really know how it's going to work exactly. Like you can like speculate, say we're going to add this component, we're going to try this new rule, we're going to do whatever. We're pretty sure this will work. You might have an intuition about how it'll work. (laughs) But like you don't really know until you put it in someone else's hands and let them start making decisions. And then you start to realize like, oh, no one ever wants to use this thing. Oh, like this is way more confusing than we thought it was. Oh, like it's just like revelation after revelation after revelation. Mm. And so for us, 
we think the only way to actually design a good game is to just like play test it to death, just constantly be pe- constantly be playing it, constantly be getting feedback, constantly. So iterating. did you do that? And so we did that over the course of. I mean, I think we again we have full time jobs, so we can't. We don't really like spend as much time as we'd like to doing this. But we started, dude. Schmoll time schmobs. It's amazing that you're doing it. We period. started making it of the very first iteration of the big game about two years ago. Uh, and it is now a game that has like art and like is pretty much like fixed. Like it's not, we're not making major changes to it anymore. It's basically, I mean, it's like done. I'm putting in quotes in a way that's like, we're going to continue as we play test it to like make fixes to it and things like that. But like, it's a game that has like art and is like, so you've printed pieces. Done. We've printed it. I have it with me. What? Yeah, I forgot to mention that. We can play it. Oh, we should play it. Um, That's what LFA is about. That's right. So that one has been a very different experience because that is like, I mean, at this point, like hundreds of hours. Um, Because it's a big, complex system that like evolved so much over two years. And it just took so much work. to. I mean, there's also like little things you don't really think about, which is like between each of these, if we're going to like iterate fast and fix problems fast mm-hmm. and play test it every weekend, which we don't do it every weekend anymore. We, there was a period where we were doing it like How literally long? every weekend. Like, a year. Whoa, dude. Yeah, we played it basically every weekend for a year with people, with just ourselves. And for each one, and a game that has like 50 cards in it, like before each one, it's like, we're changing the wording on 30 of these cards. Hmm. We need to go in there and like document those changes, make sure the file is right, print it out, put them on cards, tape them to the card, like double, triple check to make sure everything is right. Make the new board. It all looks really ugly because you're just iterating super fast. You played a couple of those really ugly iterations. Um, did. You played a really early one too. Um, but it's a ton of work actually. And it's a lot of like eating shit too. Cause like, uh, you put it in front of someone and you're like, we think generally that these ideas are interesting. Yeah. What do you think? And people are like, Oh, I think like you played a super early version where again, because you're, your friends, you're like looking for the good stuff. You're like, I like this about it. I find mm-hmm. this idea pretty interesting mm-hmm. and you know, you're being genuine, but then it's like, okay, well, what do you not like? And it's like, well, okay. These six things are like actually pretty confusing. And like doing the, you know, exchanging my money this way is like a real pain in the ass or whatever right, it is. Like, right. so like, again, it's like this really interesting design process of like just smiling and nodding and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like write everything down, write everything cool. down. And then being willing to, you know, kill a lot of your ideas and keep moving, and keep moving forward. I mean, for what it's worth, dude, with, with my experience with you, like bringing this to me, you, any feedback that I've had or any experience I've had has been positive. Like I've never felt like you've felt negative or I've never felt negative towards the game. Like it's all been, and I'm saying this basically because like, I'm not a a big game person, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, but there are a few things like that make me go like this. What? Like for the listeners, I'm making like a face, like what? Like, (laughs) How do you go about making a game? I'm the same way with um, like stand-up comedy. I'm like, oh what? gosh, yeah, that one's deeply mysterious. Yeah, but if you look at like what you're doing, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're like, hey, I think these ideas are interesting. They're entertaining to me, right? And you're seeing how they land right. on like people in real time. The stand-up is an interesting like analogy. Like I, you know, uh, it's very different, obviously, in a lot of ways. But yeah, yeah it's like yeah. necessarily this has to work in front of a crowd. Right. right. Like there's no such thing as a comic who doesn't have to work in front of a crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess maybe there's like internet people who like more like work normal. with a crowd. Right. You have to work with a crowd. Right. Right. And, um, that obviously in the podcast era, we get to hear a whole lot about that from a lot of comics who have podcasts. It's like, it's a crazy grueling experience because you have to do that same thing where you're just grinding, putting things in front of people. And, uh, I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And you have to just keep on iterating, iterating, iterating until it works. Right. And Whoa. I, and, and it's interesting because I think even with like the game or I assume maybe sometimes with like stand up comedy bit, like maybe you don't even under, fully understand why it works, but like just this like raw exposure mm-hmm. to the 
group of people you're working with, which in one case is the player or the audience. Or the time on the mat. Or the time on the mat. Merely by exposing yourself to that kind of pressure, you develop better instincts. Mm -hmm. And the thing becomes refined. Wow. I Uh, love that. Yeah. I also, man, this has major crossover with another thing, which is with just business. Yeah. Because like that's what that's where I spend I spend more time doing my job than I spend designing games or doing jujitsu, obviously. Um, yeah, time wise. Time wise. Yeah. So time-wise. much time. Um and maybe, it's maybe another not like, you know, emotional and like, you know, spiritual energy. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I but it's interesting because it is a it's it's this is a deeply held belief for me, is this idea that like you have to get exposed to sort of like we were joking at, at work the other day. We're in an early stage startup where uh, the trick is you don't know the same way, like in a, a game, you're like, okay, we are designing for fun. Right. And you can't really pursue fun as an abstract concept. Like you have to like get in there and get people to start interacting with the materials that you've created to like find something in there uh, that is fun. And then the same way it's like, but when you're designing it, you don't know what is in front of you. You don't know what it's going to look, you don't know what the final product is going to look like because you're just kind of following your nose. Uh, in the same way, like an early stage start, if you're working at a, like a big established business, your job is like sell more of the thing we make, right? Uh, or make this company run more efficiently right. or whatever, whatever is your job within that right. or make the thing. Uh, when you're at an early stage startup, you are trying to create value for a customer and like you don't know actually necessarily what that is yet and you actually can't have too rigid of an idea of what it is because you don't know and so like a big thing that we sort of joke about even inside the company is like if we're ever going to get there we have to sort of like expose ourselves to like the cold winds outside of our office you know like it's cozy inside the office right very and we can have we can sit around and have discussions all day about like what's the next best thing to do but like what does that matter if customers aren't telling us that because what's a business without customers it's the same way that like walter and i could spend hours and hours and hours talking in abstract terms about like well actually the game that i wanted to make was like kind of like more like this and i think like actually this thing isn't working because of blah 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 and really we should like introduce this new thing and we've and we'll catch ourselves 20 minutes into that conversation and go like, wait, 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 wait. what are we even talking about here? We yeah. have to play it. We have to, sh- we have to put it in front of people and we'll know immediately whether or not this is fun in the same way as like a business or a com- I'm sure a comic can say like, what are we, what are we talking about here? Take it to the club, say it for people, perform it and figure out whether or not there's something funny here in the same way that like yeah. at a business, yep. it's like, yep. okay, what, like, yes, we could waste an enormous amount of time, effort, money, internally building the wrong thing for nobody because it sounds right. But it's like, if we don't expose ourselves to the harsh winds of what's happening outside this office, if we don't get on the phone and talk to people, if we don't like show this to somebody, get real feedback, find out whether they'll give us cash for it. We don't know if it's valuable. There's, we, there's literally no other way to know whether it's valuable. Uh, and this is like a super deeply held belief. I guess I have about like, I don't know how things get made. Boy, I really, I really, I really popped off right there. That's amazing, dude. Like as an artist, like that's exactly what I need to hear going into the new year. Thank you. Expose yourself to the harsh winds. Yeah, dude. Also, I mean, the the theme is like, do it. Go do it. Go do it and put it out there. Don't do it and sit on it. Yeah, I have a tattoo that says "Then do it." It's in my own handwriting. Yeah. I now I just need to do it. That. If you make a short film and you and you, and no one ever sees it, I mean, I guess that's like maybe depends. Again, depends on what your goals are. I'm not trying to drag anyone here, but it's like, what are you doing? Like, what is that? Like, what do you? How is that going to help you do the next thing? I don't know. I don't know. And then what that looks like for each person, I don't know either. Because sometimes, dude, I just like to make things to make things. I'll yes. spend like an hour and a half on a doodle and then I'll put the sketchbook away for like a year and then I'm like, oh, I kind of want to doodle again. Yeah. I don't know. It kind of like growing up, you kind of made jokes about like me having all these hobbies and I did have a bunch of Growing different. up. We make, we make fun of you for that right now. Yeah, we're so grown up. <laughs> Is that galaxy brain or not, dude? Hard to say. We're still growing up, dude. <laughs> 
Oh, man. I have so many different hobbies, dude. You know, like right now, I'm like really into like tattoos and like getting into tattoos. Yeah. I'm even thinking about, should I tattoo? You, no. That's a discussion I don't we just had. for that shit. You, just, you said to me earlier today, you said, you can't, well, first you came, you, you went out and you got a tattoo. Yeah. You came back and you showed me your tattoo. Yes. And then you said, by the way, you didn't say this part. I'm adding some, a little bit of subtext to it. Go ahead. You said, in addition to pursuing my black belt, Hosting podcasts, launching Rock Rising, learning how to surf, and working to make money. I think I also, I think I'm probably going to go learn to be a tattoo artist and start an apprenticeship. (laughs) Okay, so another thing I'm going to do, because I heard Julie's (laughs) laugh back there, is I'm going to do this. This is another resolution as an artist and as a person, as Michael. I'm going to have people repeat my ideas <laughs> Expose yourself to the harsh wind. Expose that's it. it. That's it. And that's how we're going to end this. This is what friends are for. I love you, dude. <laughs> I love you, too. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, dude. Um, I asked you a while ago, and I'm glad that the timing is right. Yeah, man. Well, so, you asked me in Oak Lane, and when we were there, I... Why do you say it like that? Oak Lane? Oh. Oakland? Yeah. 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 So you asked me when I was there, and we didn't have the mics for it. Oh, that's true, but that's true. So. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. It has. Yeah. Anytime you're back in town, just come back on. Great. Let's see what the feedback is first. If the people want more. I don't care what the (laughs) people want. (laughs) I'm good to have you back on because for, for me personally, you said things on this episode that I need to hear. So I'm going to have you back on. I'm into it. Okay, good. All All right. right. This podcast is produced by Rock Rising. Come follow us on Instagram. And if you want to hear more podcasts, visit rockrising.org. Thanks.